morning, if you will. Last time we read the first six verses uh, that deal with that uh, thousand-year period uh, that is coming in the future when our Lord is going to reign on this earth. But the first thing that we had to do as we approached this passage was clear away all of the misunderstanding that surrounds the nature of that period of time. And so last week, uh, we went through all of the various views. For example, there was a view which says that there will never be a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Uh, That is called what? What do we call that? Amillennialism meaning no millennium uh, uh, millennium in, in the future. And then there is the view that uh, there's going to be uh, a future of great spiritual prosperity in the world. And it's going to rise up to this, this point in time, and Christ will be reigning, but he's going to be reigning from heaven. And after that period of spiritual prosperity, which may or may not be uh, a thousand years in length. It might be symbolic of an undesignated uh, length of time. But when that period terminates, then he will return, and we call this what? Post-millennialism, because he returns post uh, or after that uh, thousand-year real or symbolic period. And lastly, then, we looked at the viewpoint that there really will be a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, and he will return before that period of time begins, and that, of course, is called what? Premillennialism, and this is the position uh, that is the most natural to the sequence of the passages in Revelation. That's just not me saying that. That's all the positions saying that. It is most natural to the sequence. And it's also, by the way, the major view for the first 150 years of church history. And uh, in addition to what we looked at last time, I also want to add the fact that all three views do interpret parts of Revelation literally. Uh, Both post-mill and a-mill will agree in a literal return of Christ. There are no problems with that. They both agree in a literal great white throne judgment. Uh, They both agree on a literal new heaven and earth. So it only makes sense then, I think, to interpret the millennial kingdom literally as well. And yet, uh, for whatever reason, they don't. And this I do not understand, but this is their position. Well, chapter 19 concludes with his second coming. Now we come uh, to chapter 20, verses 1 to 6 which says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God 
who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived, meaning that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. I want to raise a question today that is sometimes used as an objection to premillennialism or the premillennialist view, and that is the objection as to God's purpose in having such a time on the earth. In other words, why shouldn't God simply take his people immediately into the eternal state? What possible objective could be accomplished by prolonging earth's history in the way that it is described here? That is, I think, a significant question. And because it's often used as an objection to premillennialism, I want to use this passage and other passages of Scripture this morning to answer that question uh, as we work through these verses together. So I want to preach to you this morning on what could uh, perhaps more appropriately be titled The Significance of the Millennium. And if you've been struggling with this question or you have heard teaching that calls into question the literalness of this period of time based on the purposes of God related to it, then just let the Word of God help you uh, form a right response that will help you then communicate to others the purpose uh, that God intends. Now, the best way to answer the question of significance is by looking at what will be distinctive about that period of time. What is there about those 10 centuries that has never been true of any century in earth's history up to this point? Whatever is distinctive uh, will help us to know the significance. Well, in the six verses that we just read, I want you to notice that there are two uh, basic sections. The first three verses are one section, and then verses 4 to 6 are the other. And you can see that if you look at verse 1, and you just ask yourself the question, who or what is that all about? You look at verses uh, 2 and 3, who or what is that all about? I think it's very clear that all three of those verses are primarily about one being. Who is it? All right. Very good. This angel comes down from heaven. And he deals with this being who is Satan. And what is revealed about him here is something that we would never know from any other passage in the Bible. There are many other passages that talk about this future period of time. But none of them say this. This is new revelation. And so this, I think, is certainly part of the significance of this time period. So let's get this down as point number one. When answering the question of significance, what is revealed here is that number one, the millennium will be a period when Satan is temporarily removed from earth's scene. 
Why is that significant? Well, you have your whole Bible to answer that question all the way from the first book. And I want to try to address that uh, in three points. First of all, when you read the Scripture, it becomes apparent that all of earth's sins and troubles can ultimately be traced back to this diabolical creature. All of them. Every wrong and evil in the earth today, every disorder in your life, can ultimately be traced back to this twisted being. The book of Genesis almost immediately tells us how his deception of Eve through his control and indwelling of the serpent in the garden led to the fall of the human race. The Apostle Paul refers to Eve being deceived by the serpent in 2 Corinthians 11.3. In fact, uh, right here in the second verse of what we just read, you can see a reference there to the dragon who was called the serpent. The next two words are of old. That old serpent deceived Eve. And our first parents fell. And ever since then, the Bible speaks of him as being the deity or the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4. The literal term for world there is age, which refers to the chronology of the world. In other words, this, this age is dominated by this spirit. Twice in the Gospel of John, once in uh, chapter 12 and then once in chapter 16, our Lord also refers to him as the ruler of this world. And that there, the world, uh, word world there is the word cosmos. So who's the ruler of this cosmos? Well, it's that old serpent. Now, that position, of course, is exactly what he coveted in the beginning. And the story of his ambition is revealed in Isaiah 14. This chapter refers to someone who is called the king of Babylon, but this uh, malignant spirit is behind that human being. And the word of God says that he willed to ascend into heaven. And he willed that his throne would be elevated above all the stars of God. And listen to this. He willed to be like the Most High. Let's think of that title for God for a moment. The Most, the Most High, meaning nobody is higher. And yet He willed to be like the Most High. Genesis 14, 19 says that the Most High is the possessor of heaven and earth. That was the devil's ambition. So He is the God of this age. He's the ruler of this cosmos. But what connection does he have then with all of us? Well, of the books and books of your Bible, of the centuries and centuries of recorded history, it is finally revealed to us in Ephesians 2.2 when the apostle says that all the children of disobedience are energized by this spirit. I mean, where... Do lost people get their incredible power and lust for evil? They are supernaturally energized, and that is undoubtedly the sense in which our Lord spoke of him as really the father of lost people in John 8, 44. 
Remember, the Lord was speaking to the Jews who were uh, attempting to murder him. And he explained the murderous spirit in these terms. He said, well, you are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father, you want to do. I mean, that explains your murderous intentions because you know what? He was a murderer from the beginning. That desire people have today to murder one another comes from Satan himself. There's one reason why 1 John 3.10 says that the children of the devil are obvious. They're easy to pick out because they do not practice righteousness. 1 John 5.19 expands on that thought by saying that the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. I don't know how uh, aware you are of what the Bible tells us is the nature of life right now in this fallen world from day to day. But even as believers, you know, we are told in Ephesians that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. The problem in your home is not your rebellious child. The problem is not ultimately uh, the struggles between you and your wife or against that uncle or aunt or grandfather or whatever it is. It's not flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against lost human beings. But it says we are wrestling against principalities, against powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, and against wicked spirits in the heavenlies. Do we understand that? We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against wicked spirits in the heavenlies. And 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that our adversary is the devil. Now, what does that do then to the viewpoint in amillennialism or amillennialism that says he was bound during the earthly life of Jesus Christ? I mean, if that's the case... Why did Peter say to Ananias in Acts 5.3 that Satan has filled your heart? Why did Paul write to the Thessalonians and explain that he was delayed in his, ver- in his visit because Satan hindered me? Why does Paul warn the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.14 that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light? Why are we told to resist the devil in James 4.7? And to give no place to the devil in Ephesians 4.27. If he's bound, why on earth give those commands? Now the fact is he is loose. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion walking about. And he is behind the world's evil. All I'm saying is that Scripture confirms the point that the world's sins and troubles can ultimately be traced back to this evil, wicked spirit. And as a result, number two, all the world's history is nothing but the grim record of the legacy of his rule. You say, what is it like to be ruled by the devil? Look at history. That is his legacy. For example, our Lord said that he was a murderer from the beginning. His children desired to do his lusts. All right, let's just lay aside for a moment the war and the genocide taking place in the Ukraine as the most recent example. And let's just take the century that we left just 22 years ago. What's your impression of the 20th century 
when compared with all of the previous ones. Somebody says, well, we're more enlightened. Well, that's true. Somebody else says, man, our technology, we have surpassed all of the other centuries combined. That is also true. But did you know that historians have labeled the 20th century as the century of death because of the genocide in country after country after country? Wicked regimes have deliberately targeted people groups simply because of their nationality or ethnicity. They have determined to exterminate them. Historians conservatively estimate that up to 100 million people were killed in that way last century. That doesn't even include abortion, which no secular historian would list as mass murder. And yet they still call it the century of death. Where do you think that came from? It is the rule of the one who was a murderer from the beginning. Well, in the tribulation period, as we saw in Revelation 6 to 19, his power is going to reach its peak through the man of sin. You can just imagine what that's going to be like. And that leads to a third point that at the end of human history, after his lust for control and murder has reached its height, the world will finally experience for 10 centuries what it will be like to exist without him. What will it be like? No more devil, and evidently none of his minions either. The world is released from the cruel grip of his murderous intentions for ten centuries. What will that be like when you consider what he is responsible for in the 20th century alone? Well, it's going to be marvelous especially when you consider the way that God is going to deal with him. So with that significance of the millennium in, in mind, then let's turn our attention to the first three verses. And what you find there is absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, if the Bible didn't tell us about this, we could never imagine it ever happening. But look at how it's described. First of all, he's going to be bound. And verse 1 tells us that of all of God's creation... He will be bound with the most humiliating experience he could have. I mean, God Almighty isn't going to do it himself. And he's not going to bother the Son of God by asking him to lay hold of the devil. No, he's going to use one of the devil's own kind. And the reason that would be humiliating is because in Ezekiel 28 and in Jude 9, we are told that the devil evidently was the chief of the whole angelic company. In Ezekiel 28, he is described as coming from the cherub class of angels. He's called the anointed cherub who covers. We are told that God created him and he poured into him the sum total of two things, beauty and wisdom. By the way, that tells you that it's a dangerous thing to be one of the beautiful people in the world. In fact, the Scripture says he was perfect in all his ways. And in Jude 9, we are shown a scene that's very interesting at the burial of uh, God's servant Moses where there was this great conflict 
between this creature and another angel. Who was the other angel? Michael, great name, thank you. Michael the archangel, or the chief angel. But in that conflict, it says that Michael did not dare bring a reviling accusation against the devil. And you know, Jude uses that as an illustration of how wrong it is when wicked people rail against authority, which seems to imply, I think, that there was a time when Michael himself had a lesser rank than this fallen angel. At any rate, it has to be the ultimate in divine insult to authorize another of his own kind to bind him. That would be like a five-star general being taken to prison by a private. You can imagine that. Now, what does he bind him with? Well, in verse 1, that angel comes down with a great chain. You know, that, that very fact is why some people doubt the literalness of these whole six verses. They will argue that there cannot be a millennium. These verses could not be fulfilled literally because, for example, here's a chain. Satan is a spiritual being. How do you bind his spirit with a chain? That's the argument. But the problem with that is that they are thinking of literal being the equivalent of material. Right? So a literal chain must be a material chain. Well, you know, I do want to say that God can bind a spirit with a material chain if he wants to. God doesn't have a problem with that. But God who made that spirit isn't going to have any difficulty creating a chain of some kind that can bind even this creature. He will be literally imprisoned and manacled by this chain. And for a thousand years, he'll be bound in that way. Imagine having your arms pinned behind your back for a thousand years. And notice that this is not all, because verse 3 tells us that he is thrown into the abyss, and that he's shut up and sealed in there. Now, we first encountered the abyss in chapter 9, but we discovered that it appears to be some kind of a shaft. It's described as bottomless. And although we don't really know the location, we are told that when it's open, there's smoke that comes out of it, like the smoke of a great furnace. So this wicked creature is thrown into that shaft. He's shut inside, and the wording really indicates that it is sealed over him. Now, that kind of language cannot simply be saying that his actions are being restrained in the present, which is the view of the post-millennialist. Those brethren claim that Jesus Christ bound him at the cross, and therefore he is limited in what he can do today. But the whole passage is using language here that indicates that his activity is completely terminated. He's bound. He's shut up. He's sealed in a bottomless pit. I mean, this is, this is his Alcatraz. And the whole point of arguing for that chaining being in the future and not the past is so that he won't do what? Verse 3 says that he won't deceive the nations any longer. Well, this is a testimony to exactly what I pointed out earlier, that his malicious influence is universal. He does deceive all the nations right now. But that law will be taken away in the future by his being bound shut up, sealed in this way. 
So what is the first significance of this thousand-year period of time? Why would God intend on having a millennial kingdom on earth? Well, consider the fact that here is something that has never been true in all of past history. There will be a, a long period of time for the world to experience what it's like to live without satanic deception, without the lies and the evil energized by that fallen supernatural being. What do you think a world would be like without the devil? Just read all of the passages in Scripture that warn you about the influence that he has and then strike through them because he is no longer present. What would that world be like? That in itself would be sufficient to show mankind something that he has never seen before. I mean, if God wanted to make a point about the role of the devil in human history, taking him out would make that point. There is a second thing revealed in this passage that helps us understand why God is intent on having this period of time. And it's in verses 4 to 6. And this is not filled out in great detail here, but if you look at the end of verse 4, we are told that certain people are going to be resurrected and then they're going to be involved in this activity of reigning and that they are going to reign in company with Jesus Christ. So number one, we have 10 centuries without the devil and his domination. But number two, we have 10 centuries under the rule of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The millennium will be a time when the world will be ruled by someone who is entirely righteous. Now, there really are no words. There are no emotions to describe what it would be like to be entirely free from all of the insidious influences of Satan and then to be under the earthly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of world would that be? Not described in these verses. And I do just want to point out that after taking 14 chapters to cover just seven years, it's almost shocking to have a thousand years taken up with just six verses. I mean, it's almost the reverse of what you would prefer, right? I mean, I want 15 chapters and what the millennium's going to be like. Uh, but he doesn't give it to us here. In Revelation. Instead, there is an immense body of Scripture that deals with this time in other passages. And the vast majority of them are found in the Old Testament. So I want to walk through some of that in our remaining time, which means, of course, that we can only touch on bits and pieces. But again, we're simply trying to understand what purpose God has for this period of time. So uh, let's just, I just want these references really to paint a picture for you. And let's start by noting that there are many references indicating that the Messiah's reigning on the earth has been one of God's purposes from ancient times. That is point number one. Now, I don't mean that it was in God's mind in eternity past. That's true. But in terms of when it was revealed in Scripture, God does not wait until the last book of our Bible to tell us. But there are many ancient prophecies indicating that God had determined long ago 
that this world was going to be the inheritance of his son. Perhaps one of the earliest references of that is in Psalm 2. It was written about 10 centuries ago. This is a psalm uh, that we've returned to, of course, again and again in the series because it records the nations of the world rebelling against the throne of heaven from the time that they became nations in the book of Genesis. World history in a nutshell. But God says to his son in verse 8, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. That word there is, is the word for Gentiles. The goyim. I will give you the goyim for your inheritance. The Gentiles. You can add Daniel 7.14 to that where we have this future scene when the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days on the throne and to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all the people's nations and those of every language might serve him. They are given him to do that. Well, who have they been serving to this point in time? Who, who have they been serving for all of their troubled history until the present? All of history is a legacy to whose rule? Satan. But in the future, ask of me, I'll give them all to you. And now they're going to serve you. Isaiah 24, 23 tells us where he's going to be reigning in that day when the people serve him. It says, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. So there's your geographical location. Uh, some of us visited that mount in 2013. You stood right there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He's going to be there too one day, reigning. And then Jeremiah 3.17 adds, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of God, of the Lord, Yahweh. So think right now of the tiny nation of Israel surrounded by all of her enemies. Are any of those enemies calling Jerusalem, the throne of Yahweh today. Not a chance, right? But they will, because it says, All the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. God has ordained that this is going to be the case. And then remember, uh, when we went through all of those scripture passages last week, and I asked you to just kind of take them at face value. Well, the last one that we read was uh, Zechariah 14, where God opens the fountain of cleansing to Israel when, he, uh, when the Lord Jesus returns again. But do you remember what the passage talks about after that? All the nations coming to Jerusalem in the future. They're coming to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. God says there that if they refuse to come, they're going to experience deprivation because he's going to turn off the rain like a tap. There's going to be no water until they come. So they will come to Jerusalem, to the throne of Yahweh. They will not follow the dictates of their evil hearts. They're not going to do the lusts of the devil anymore. Now they're going to follow the desires of the Messiah. Now, with that in mind, of course, you have to remember that many of these people are going to be unregenerated. Uh, as we'll see in a moment, uh, this period of time will be inhabited by many nations and peoples, and those people will marry and bear children, and their children will be born, and they'll be just like we were when we were born, unregenerated, lost. Now, of course, some of them will receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, but some of them never will. 
And we know that because at the end of the millennium, when Satan is released, he's going to deceive those lost people. But during the millennium, they're going to be constrained to submit themselves to this monarch. And Jesus Christ will be Lord of all. Now, that brings me to my second point about the Messiah's reign. The first is that God purposed his reign from ancient times. But secondly, this is going to be the fulfillment of a promise that he made to an ancient king. Uh, So if you're wondering about the significance of why God would do this, here's a good reason. He's going to do this to keep his promise to this man. Uh, God came to him in 2 Samuel 7. And he said, I will set up your seed after you. It will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who was the man? David, right? King David. So when uh, when Gabriel came to Mary in Luke 1, and I won't read it for time's sake, but he assured her that her baby would be given the throne of his father, David. Well, Jesus right now is seated on a throne, his father's throne. That's not David's throne, right? There is a throne called the throne of David on earth. It's a throne over the nation of Israel. So, David, your house, your kingdom will endure forever. And Mary, your baby's going to get that throne. And this will be the fulfillment of what is called the Davidic covenant covenant that God made with David, that from his lineage would come one who was eternal in nature so that his throne could endure forever. And in addition to that, there is a sense in which this millennial reign is going to be a fulfillment, now not the total fulfillment, but a fulfillment of even the ancient Abrahamic covenant. You remember one of the promises of that covenant to Abraham was, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So a great nation is going to come from this man, and then through him, all the nations will be subsequently blessed. Well, the primary way in which that covenant is fulfilled is when Gentiles come to Christ, which Paul identifies in Galatians as the seed of Abraham. When those Gentile converts uh, in the Galatian region Uh, came to Christ, to salvation. They were recipients of the blessing to all nations through that seed. In this room today, most of us are Gentiles. Are there any Jews here? I don't think we do. Most of us are Gentile, right? And uh, when we came to Christ, we became the children of Abraham by faith. And we experienced the blessing that God promised to Abraham through his descendant, the Messiah. That is the primary fulfillment of the seed blessing all the nations. But in the future, when that seed reigns on the earth, when the Messiah is here as Abraham's descendant, and all the nations are here on this earth, he will reign over them in a certain way, and they will be blessed by his reign, and that will also be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, that brings us to number three which is the fact that in that day, the world's experiences will be the exact opposite of what they were under the rule of Satan. I mean, under Satan, what have the world's experiences been to this point? We talked about that, all right? 
By contrast, under the rule of the Messiah, what will the world's experiences be in that day? They will be the exact opposite of its history under Satan. Now, this is what the majority of those Old Testament promises are going to focus on. And all I can do really uh, this morning is just focus on about half a dozen and just try to weave them together for the sake of time. So let's just start right here. All over the earth today, it is survival of the fittest. And there are some people groups with populations in the millions whose hearts long for nothing more than freedom and fairness and equity. I mean, think of the Ukrainians. Uh, but this will also be the case for the entire population of North Korea, uh, China, Sri Lanka, going through some turmoil at the moment, and so on. Well, Jeremiah 23, 5, In that day a king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Finally, justice will be executed. In Isaiah 11, 4, But with righteousness he shall, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That, that verse is not threatening poor people with judgment. <laughs> That's not what it's saying, uh, like oppressing them. But it's relieving their anxiety. It's saying to them, you know, there's a day coming when poor people and meek people and weak people are going to have a champion. And he will be just and right and equitable. And he will free them from their chains and, and oppressions that have held them in bondage. He's not going to use and manipulate them for political purposes like our governments do now. But he's going to genuinely help them. In Zechariah 8.3, Jerusalem where he rules, of course, shall be called the city of truth. Oh boy. If you know anything about politics, the history of the world's politics is nothing more than lies and intrigue. Don't let the media fool you. Um, but the day is coming when that city, where his throne is seated, the center of the millennial government, will be known in terms of that particular perfection in its ruler. That is the city of truth up there. Now, let me, let me ask you something. What will people's economic, uh, physical, mental, social, and emotional state be like when they are governed in truth, righteousness, and equity? What will the state of the world be under those conditions? Well, the Bible describes it for us, doesn't it? Isaiah 65, 21 and 22. says, people shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. You say, well, what's so special about that? I'm doing that now, okay. Well, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, uh, you want to think about this in, in terms of something like a communist regime right, where people work like dogs and all their efforts go towards the Communist Party, who gives them just enough to get by without starving so they can keep working for them. Or think about a dictatorship where the dictator takes and takes and takes. If he wants your house, well, he's got it. He's going to move out. 
Think of the Nazis who took over country after country and just stole everything from the people to enrich themselves. I mean, we, we live in a country that gives you rights over personal property. But you have to understand, this has not been the case for the majority of the people in the history of the world. It hasn't been. So what a relief to know that you're going to build a house and you're actually going to get to live in it. And you're going to plant crops and you're going to enjoy those fruits. No one's going to steal them. It says, for as the days of a tree, so shall, the days of my people, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. In Micah 4.4, 4, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Uh, and then in verse 3, it says, the weapons of the world, all their arsenals, they're going to be converted into implements of agriculture. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Here's interesting. Even the wild animals of the earth are going to be affected. In Ezekiel 34, 25, God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause the wild beasts to cease from the land and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Well, that's a relief. You know, you're not going to have to fear feral cats in the bush anymore, in the, in the millennial bush. I mean, there are lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, yes. <laughs> now, you can sleep in the woods without being eaten by the wildlife. Isaiah 11, 6-9, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Why? Why won't the lion look at the calf and say, it's dinner time? Because God says the cow and the bear shall graze. The young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Someone says, man, that's just too fantastic. That just cannot be literal. Why not? Why, why can't their creator change their nature and their eating habits? Nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They're gardening out the back. You see that funnel web spider's hole in the ground. You put your hand right down there. He'll, he'll kiss it for you. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And even people's longevity is going to be affected. Isaiah says a child's going to be 100 years old. I'm a baby. I'll be a baby. I'm only half 100 years old. What a wonderful day that will be. Now, the Scripture only gives us broad strokes, but really, uh, this is amazing. Ten centuries like this, this with prosperity, with no War. Can you imagine a thousand years and no wars? No genocides. No abortions. A righteous ruler on the throne and prosperity everywhere. Be a testimony to certain statements God has made in his word. For example, statements like this. Righteousness exalts a nation. Now, hardly anybody believes that today. I mean, that's not how you get ahead in a political party. Outing righteousness. But in that day, 
it will be the proof that God will give to all mankind that his words are true and that righteousness, well, that really does exalt the world. It's no wonder that Satan attempted to prevent the possibility of the Messiah reigning. We read, we read about that in uh, Revelation 12. You remember uh, the woman represented by the nation Israel, and the Bible tells us Satan stood by waiting to devour that child as soon as it was born. Well, it's the wonder he wanted that child, given what he was prophesied to do. And the passage said that because he was thwarted in his attempts, he went away hating her children. I hope you can see that in the news today. You don't see it in mainstream media that much, but just recently, Hamas sent more than 100 rockets into Israel from the Gaza Strip. 100 rockets. They've been doing this since 2007. The Hamas charter states Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam obliterates it, just as it has obliterated others before it. Can you imagine that in the Australian Constitution, something like that? That's the charter of Hamas. That's the serpent hating the woman. And there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus will rule on the earth and that old serpent's going to be bound up and sealed in a pit. No wonder, you know, that when Jesus was on the earth, that the devil met him to tempt him. And one of those temptations, you remember, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, you know what, Jesus? You can have it all right now if you'll just bow before me. But the Lord didn't. It wasn't time for him to claim those nations as an earthly king. And as a result, his kingdom is still coming. We're back to Revelation 20, and we're almost done. But as we continue to trace the significance of that reign, number four, when it happens, verses four to six emphasize there's going to be some who reign with him. His rule will be shared. Verse four says, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Well, who's the they? Not specified in the passage. But we do have other passages that tell us. So let's quickly look at two other references. If you skip back to chapter 5, you've got this throne scene in heaven, you remember. And you've got these uh, seated around the throne. And look at verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we have a, a reference here to those who are redeemed. These are the redeemed from all the nations. And verse 10 says, You have made us kings and priests to our God. And here's the line we're looking for. We shall reign, where? On the earth. You have a place in your eschatology, for the redeemed of every nation reigning on the earth. Can your eschatology allow for that? Because that's what they're singing about in heaven, just so you know. Now, go back to chapter 2 and uh, what Jesus says here. I think this is unimaginable. But at the end of his message there to the church in Thyatira, he gives this promise in verse 26 to believers who overcome. And he says, he who overcomes... And keeps my works until the end. To him, to the overcomer, I will give power over the nations. He, that is the overcomer, shall rule them with the rod of iron. 
and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. That's a quote from Psalm 2. In fact, remember, those are the words the father said to the son. You're going to rule them with a rod of iron. Well, the son, who's the speaker here, takes that promise, turns around, and he says to overcoming Christians, I'm going to give you authority over the nations, and you're going to rule them with a rod of iron. And then finish the verse, as I also have received from my father. See that? He's delegating his authority. He's, he's actually quoting a messianic promise here, and he's applying it to his overcoming people. That's pretty amazing. Well, back to Revelation 20. When it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them, who's the they? Well, there's no immediate reference in the context, but previous passages, I think, make it clear that the church of Jesus Christ will certainly reign with him. But then in verse 4, John sees the souls of tribulation martyrs. And it can't be any doubt about who they are because he describes them. It's the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They're pretty clear. He sees these tribulation martyrs, and then he highlights the fact that they come to life. They lived. They were beheaded. Now they live. What do we call that? The resurrection, right? Look at the end of verse 5. This is the first resurrection. I want to spend a moment uh, just a moment with this, because this has created some confusion for believers. Does this mean that the church of Jesus Christ, the church right now, okay, including peoples whose bodies we have lovingly buried, our former pastor, uh, some of your family members, even young people, we've buried these people. Does this mean they will not be raised until this resurrection after the tribulation, after the second coming of Jesus Christ, because it says right here, this is the first resurrection. I think that is a significant question. Well, the answer to that is in a passage like Daniel 12, 2, which speaks of two categories of resurrection. It talks about the one to everlasting life, and then it talks about one to disgrace and everlasting contempt. In John 5, our Lord is speaking. It says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. Listen to the two categories again. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. And those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Scripture is laying out two types of resurrection. Now, when you read the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, you get over 50 verses that talk about resurrection. And it tells us that Jesus Christ himself was the first fruits. That was a resurrection. Then after him, it talks about every man being resurrected in order. And what becomes apparent from that chapter, as well as a combination of these other passages, is that the resurrection to life or the resurrection of the good and the righteous is actually a resurrection in stages. You have Christ, the first fruits, and you have the church, 1 Thessalonians 4. Remember, we studied that, that the dead bodies are raised at the same time that the Lord raptures the living church. 
to keep them out of the tribulation. All right. So now at the end of the tribulation, these martyred tribulation saints are coming up out of the grave. And Scripture is not really clear about this, but I think this is probably the time when Old Testament saints are resurrected as well. And this is all part of the first resurrection. The resurrection of all those to everlasting life. You see, it's happening in stages. And the only reason, by the way, I say that Old Testament saints are part of this in Revelation 20 is because when 1 Thessalonians 4 speaks about that resurrection, it refers to it as a resurrection of those who are in Christ. And while Old Testament saints, I want to be clear, are only saved by the atoning work of Christ, just like we are, they look forward, we look back, they are never spoken of in terms that are used when referring to the, Christ, uh, the church body as being in Christ. That term is never used to refer to them. And it seems to indicate, I think, that Old Testament saints will be resurrected in the following stage of resurrection, Revelation 20, rather than at the rapture. That's just my point of view. But nevertheless, they are all part of the first resurrection. So that means, of course, David's going to get resurrected. You're going to get to see King David. I wonder what he looks like. You're going to see Abraham. Uh, I mean, these people will experience the kingdom. Like we, we talked about this earlier, that in Ezekiel, it talks about David ruling over Israel in the kingdom. How cool is that going to be? So here we have uh, the tribulation saints raised. And, you know, these guys, they put it all on the line for Christ. They suffered fierce persecution. I cannot imagine. They lost their lives. They gave their blood, lost their heads. Now they're going to reign for 10 centuries with him. And that brings this question, over whom are they going to reign? Who are the subjects in the kingdom? Two answers and then we're done. Number one, you remember Zechariah tells us a third of the nation of Israel is going to be spared at the end of the tribulation. And they're going to be supernaturally prepared with the spirit of grace to welcome the one whom they have pierced. Well, that third is going to go into the millennial kingdom. So there's one category of subjects. In addition to that, Matthew 25 talks about Christ coming, taking his seat on the throne, and then he gathers all of the Gentile nations before him, and he sorts them into two groups, the sheep and the goats. Now, what was the deciding factor as to which group somebody ends up in. Well, the Lord describes the point of differentiation as being their response to his suffering brethren. When his brethren were in prison and impoverished and without food or clothing or sick during the tribulation, what was your response as a Gentile? I mean, these are the nations. It's the goyim. It's the, the ethnoi gathered before him. How did they respond to God's persecuted people? Now, what I'm saying here is, you know, there's a question that during the tribulation, you're going to have exactly what took place in Europe during the Holocaust. You remember that? Uh, there's going to be people, even lost people, who risked their properties, who risked their lives in order to hide the Jews and refugees from the Nazis. So, during the tribulation, you will no doubt have that same phenomenon, and those who showed their goodness in that way, 
uh, even to a cup of cold water, will be allowed to enter the kingdom. Matthew 25 teaches that. So there's going to be Gentile people who helped God's people during the tribulation. They're going to be there. There's going to be the remaining nation of Israel. And by the way, remember that Jesus promised the 12 apostles in Matthew 19, 28, that they would get to reign over the 12 tribes of Israel in that future state. But lastly, this passage also tells us at the end of verse 6 that those people who reign, well, they're also going to be priests. His rule will have priests. And I don't have time to go into this, but you can read in Ezekiel 40 to 48 about a rebuilt temple in the kingdom. The sacrifices, they're going to be renewed. These are not atoning sacrifices. Of course not. They're commemorative sacrifices. So just like we partake of the Lord's Supper today and we point back to the cross, these sacrifices will also point back to the Lord's redemptive work and those people will be his priests. And my friend, it is going to be a glorious day. You know, one of the things I'm going to enjoy the most in the millennial kingdom is where it talks about a great big river that comes out from underneath the temple and flows right down through the Dead Sea. The Bible says that people are going to stand on that river and catch great big fish like they catch in the ocean. Well, I'm a terrible fisherman. I have caught one fish I'm proud of, and I'll tell you the story later if you want. But in that day, I get to catch a big one. And uh, so this will be a blessed period of time on the whole earth. Wonderful time. So, if you ask, what could possibly be God's point in having a millennial kingdom? Well, here's the answer. The world is not going to end after 6,000 years or more as a testimony and a legacy to the reign of the devil. Not going to happen. Instead, God is going to have a period of time, just a thousand years, that will be his opportunity to demonstrate what even sinful mankind, unregenerated people, what they can experience in terms of blessedness if they are ruled over by his Son in righteousness and truth. And brothers and sisters, I hope to see you there. Now we bow together for prayer.